Now, I know all of you, if uh, you've got TV or internet, have seen ad campaigns that use a uh, before and after theme to try to sell their products. They always start with these before pictures and then have an after picture. And uh, whether it's hair products or beauty products or weight loss products, it's always the same kind of thing. You've got a, a graphic before picture that looks like they took probably the worst picture that they could ever find, uh, maybe even airbrushed it to make it look worse than it actually is. You know, these guys in those weight loss pictures are sticking everything out and, you know, and their hair is a mess. And the, the women, you know, they're make no makeup and their hair is all out and they just they, they look horrible and then they show the after picture which you can tell is probably just the opposite they've airbrushed it and uh, you know trimmed off some pounds and they're bulked up and you know whatever is the product all to help us think that somehow if we bought that product or if we did whatever it is that those people do we would have the same results and uh, I think we like those before and after commercials and before and after TV shows because it it resonates inside of us because we like to think that, that uh, we like to think the best in people. We like to think that there is inside all of us an after picture, right? That uh, somewhere along the line, we're going to wake up one morning and it's going to be the after uh, or that we're in the after. And, you know, it's even spawned TV shows. You've got uh, TV shows, reality shows that are based on this whole notion of before and after. They take cars and they'll go and find an old piece of junk in, you know, some uh, junkyard and they'll bring it in and they'll restore it and get it all fixed up and then you'll have an after. And it's unbelievable what they can do to it. We do it with homes. You've got TV shows that talk about homes that uh, they go and find these houses and they flip the houses and get them looking uh, phenomenal and do all these things to them. And, and that just resonates with us. Before and after, and I think the first time that that really got to me was a TV show that's almost 20 years old uh, that started on PBS, and really they were one of the first ones to use the before and after kind of uh, sales pitch, and it was Antiques Roadshow. Any of you ever watch Antiques Roadshow back uh, on PBS? You'd have to turn to PBS to watch it. Uh, but, but, you know, Antiques Roadshow was unique in that they would go to these different towns, and it started in England, and now they do it in the United States. They go to these different towns, and backwoods towns and big cities and everyone brings all their junk to these antique road shows and in bringing their junk it could be stuff that they cleared out of the attic or was passed down from grandma or uh, passed down from a family member and they'll bring something that usually they're unique items and, and you know strange items most of them to me look like things that sit on my grandmother's top shelf gathering dust I mean all of us have those kind of things uh, that we think, man, maybe I should grab that someday and go take that to Antiques Roadshow. But anyway, we like it because they bring it in and, and the experts are there, whether it's a painting, a toy, a statue, and they'll look at these things. And you've got regular Joe that just brought this thing in, and he's just kind of hopeful, you know, and they talk to him before, and he says, you know, I hope it's worth $10 or $20. It's been in the family. I, it's been sitting over in a corner. It's amazing. They'll say, you know, it, it was a doorstop for a long time, and, you know, or we had it in the kitchen, uh, you know, wall. And then the guy looks at it and begins to look through it and study it and these experts, and all of a sudden they'll come out telling them that this piece of junk, this, this old painting is a, somehow one of a kind. Or somehow it's a masterpiece that had gotten lost somewhere. And, and the story always ends that way. And it's always so inspiring uh, for all of us. I think it makes people want to go clean out their attics, right? Or clean out their basements. Or uh, started the flea market craze where you go and you think, maybe I'll stumble on one of these, these beautiful works of art, these one-of-a-kind pieces that really just look like a mess. We see long before any of that was around, the Apostle Paul was talking about what it meant 
to have a before and after. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul is a walking poster child for before and after. If, if there's anybody in the Bible that we could say is a, a perfect picture of before and after, it's Paul. Because you remember he was Saul. We learn about him in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. He, he saw the Pharisee. He is a pursuer of Christians. He is one of the ones that the Jewish people, when they began to go out and chase Christians and pursue Christians and persecute Christians, they sent Saul because he is a bloodhound. And he is vicious and he is violent. Matter of fact, the first time we see him is in Acts chapter 6. The death of the very first Christian martyr, Stephen, is stoned to death. It says that Saul, the Pharisee, was standing there when he was stoned. And then all of a sudden... Saul is going to persecute Christians in Damascus, and while he's on the road to Damascus, something happens to him, and he, he has an encounter with a living Savior, and he goes to this house, and he's asleep, and when he wakes up, he is totally different. And it becomes the greatest picture of before and after that we have in the Bible. The greatest picture of someone that all of a sudden was one time throwing stones at Christians, and in the next breath... He's taking the gospel all over the known world. He is the first great missionary that we have in the Bible. He is spreading the word of God. And, and the question that comes is what happened? What happened in that intervening moment when he had that road to Damascus experience, that light that God came and spoke to him. And we've been talking about this on Wednesday nights because we're studying through the book of Acts and we're looking at the apostles and you know, I, I told you I used to call the apostles, uh, you know, the seven doors or the 12 doors because they never got it all throughout Jesus' ministry. If you go and read when Jesus is teaching for those three years that they walked with him, those guys just didn't have a clue. Anything that they did, they did because they stumbled onto it. Jesus would be teaching and they'd say something that was just the opposite and you can hear in Jesus' teaching his voice just shaking his head saying, what were you thinking? You know, or, or did you really say that or did you really do that? But they were coming along. And then all of a sudden, the night that Jesus is arrested, they flee. They don't understand what's going on. And three days later, when Jesus appears to them resurrected, they are totally changed men. So changed that each one of them is killed for their faith later on in their walks. So changed that, that they are willing to go and die for something that just a couple of nights before, they were denying to anyone that asked a question. Well, what happened? How did you go from a before to after? You see, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you've got a before and after. You've got a before picture and an after picture. And this morning, Paul's going to explain what happened to him and what happened to the apostles. And I think he's going to explain what happened to some of us in this room. He's going to paint two very graphic pictures, much like the pictures you see in the ads and you see in TV of a before and after. He's going to paint what it looks like for a person, for us, what we looked like at one time before we ever had an encounter with Jesus. We'll call it B.C., before Christ. And then he's going to paint a picture of what someone looks like after they've had an encounter with Jesus Christ, or, or A.D., as I call it, after I died, after I gave and died, my old self disappeared, and I became new in Christ. And so he's going to paint these two graphic pictures. And I believe as we read through this, everyone in this room is going to find yourself in one of those pictures. And I think it's going to be obvious to you. It may not be obvious to the person sitting beside you. It may not be obvious to me. Uh, it may not be obvious to those friends that are around you or family members that you have. But I believe as we read through this passage and your Holy Spirit is going to speak to you and it's going to be real obvious which side 
of the encounter you fall on this morning. Because you see, something happened. And if something hasn't happened to you that stretched you from B.C. to A.D., then there's good news for you this morning. Paul's going to share how you can transform. So you have your Bible, look at Ephesians. We're in Ephesians chapter 2, and uh, we have been going through Ephesians chapter 1, just kind of walking through it. And, uh, you know, in Ephesians chapter 1, up until this point, really has just been introduction. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 is, is really just Paul's introduction to the letter. Uh, it is really three long sentences. And I didn't really talk about it last week in Harvest Day when we looked at verses 15 to 23. But that is also a long sentence. Verses 3 through 14 is one long sentence. And so what, what Paul has done in this letter so far is he has done a really welcome at the very first in verses 1 and 2, and then verses 3 through 14 is a doxology. It's a song. He, he breaks out in what God has done in his life and how God has changed you and I, and, and he talks about who we are in Christ and all that we've been given. And then last week, he looked in verse 15 to 23, it's a prayer. And so really, if it was a sermon, if you're saying, well, the letter to Ephesians is a sermon, that would have been the, the hi, how are you, uh, the worship song, the opening prayer, and now he's getting to the sermon. Now he's going to get to the depths of truth that resonate to you and I. I, I told you Ephesians is broken down. The first three chapters are theology, they're doctrinal. The second three chapters are application. They're all, how do we take what we just learned in the first three chapters and apply them to our lives? How do we live out what we just learned? And he is about to start building on what it means to be a believer. And he starts at the very beginning. What it means to come to Christ. What did we look like before we became Christians? And how are we going to look after we become Christians? And if you remember, the foundation that he was building in chapter 1, you have to go back to that because he was trying to help us understand who we really are in Christ, that you are a saint, that you're not a sinner saved by grace anymore. You are a saint that may sometimes make mistakes, but you are a child of God. And because you are a child of God, there is something special about you. You have been given grace and mercy and forgiveness and love. Matter of fact, he says, every spiritual blessing that's available, you have been given and what Paul wants to, to create in that foundation is who you are and what you've been given. You've been redeemed. You've been set free. You are now changed. You have an inheritance, and that inheritance is the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And so all of that to create a platform for him to build what it looks like. And so let's start with uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. As for you, Christians, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. Now, if you're going to start out with a before picture and you want to paint a bleak picture, I think you were dead is probably the best place to start. See, the very first thing he says about you and I, and the good news for us that are Christians is, he says, you were. But all of us at one time or another in our life were dead. And he's not talking about a physical death. He's talking about a spiritual death. But it's just as real as a physical death. It's just as present in our lives as a physical death. He said everyone in this room, because of the sin that is in our lives, we were dead spiritually. We were corrupt. We were unable to, to worship God. We were one, unable to, to even understand the things of God. You realize that because of sin's influence in your life that you couldn't even pursue God on your own. God had to send his Holy Spirit to draw you to him. Because there is nothing in us when we are dead in our sins that want to have anything to do with God. 
He says, you were spiritually dead. And let me just say this this morning. Some of you, this is not about were, this is about are. Because some of you this morning, you are spiritually dead. How can you tell? You can tell because you have no Holy Spirit. I told you last week, the, the test of whether or not you are a believer in Jesus Christ is not whether you have a church membership or you know the date that you walked down an aisle and prayed with a preacher or have a baptism certificate or your grandma prayed over you. The way that you know that whether you're not a believer or whether you're spiritually dead or not is do you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you? Do you know that that comforter, that that power, that that peace, that that voice is still inside of you? Because if the Holy Spirit's not there, the Bible says in chapter 1 that you're not a believer. Because it's guaranteed for every believer. He says, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's Satan, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. For all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. Now, that, that paints an incredible, incredible, ugly before picture. One that should scare us, but it's one that is obvious, a before picture. There's no confusing a before and after picture in this. See, what Paul wants to do is he wants to draw such drastic extremes so that we can really understand what it means to be before we encounter Jesus Christ and what it means after we encounter Jesus Christ. And so he draws it starkly. He says, you were spiritually dead. I like the way Paul describes what he was before he became a Christian in Romans chapter 7. He says, what a wretched man am I, for who will rescue me from this body of death? Now, that picture there, he's using a Roman illustration of one of the ways that Romans would uh, condemn a person to death. The Romans were horribly sick in trying to figure out ways to kill people, especially their enemies. And crucifixion was a graphic way. But another way that they would kill condemned enemies or condemned people is they would take a dead body, a decomposing dead body, and they would tie it and attach it to a living person. Whoever that condemned person was, they would attach a living body to them. And that person had to go the rest of their life with this person attached to them, with this dead body attached to them. Everywhere they went, when they ate, there was a dead body attached to them, a stinking, rotting corpse. And slowly but surely, that rotting corpse would, would begin to get diseased. And that disease would come on to the person who it was attached to. And slowly, that person that was alive because of having this dead body attached to it would begin to die. And it was a slow and horrible and painful death. And Paul said, that's what sin does to us. See, sin eats us from the inside out. It corrupts us. It leads us to a spiritual death. It leads us to this idea of a hardened heart where we can't even hear God. We don't even know God's around says, you were there one day. There was a point in your life when your spiritual life was like a rotting corpse eating you from the inside out. No hope. Sin destroys us. And then he tells us there how we stay in that structure. You'd think if we were spiritually dead that we would have a desire to want to come to know God or a desire to get this rotten, stinking corpse off of us. But did you hear what he said? He said, but you were under the influence. You were enslaved. See, there were things working against you when you were before and you, you were dying to sin and you were in that place of sin. There were things that were working to keep you in that place. What were they? First of all, he says the world. 
says you are enslaved to the world. You need to understand, we live in a world system that is built solely for the purpose of keeping men away from God. You say, well, how can you say that? I can say that because the Bible says the world and its desires and its fleshes are passing away. Satan, who is the ruler of the earth and the ruler of our world, propagates this idea uh, of sin. Now, I'm not saying it makes us do anything. The world doesn't make you do anything. But what it does is it creates an atmosphere. It creates an environment that wants you to stay in that corrupted state of sin. We have a world, we have, we, our culture today, the environment that we live in, it glorifies sin. It glorifies selfishness. It glorifies you rationalizing why all the things that the Holy Spirit says are wrong is okay. And in rationalizing and in justifying, and, and we hear it all the time. We hear it on TV. You turn on the TV, and, and it just blows at you. Don't question me. Don't judge me. Don't look at me. Well, I'm not here to judge. The Bible says God's going to do plenty of that. I'm here to just proclaim the truth that we serve a Savior that can change lives. But I want to tell you that this world and its systems are based on keeping you enslaved to that death of sin convinces us that sin is fun. And I told you this before, sin is always fun for a season. It's how it gets us trapped. It's always fun for a short bit. It, it always has a great first taste. But the way sin works in our life is once it attaches itself to us, it's not happy with just a little bit. It wants all of us. And before you know it, it begins to corrupt and it begins to take over and it begins to take charge. And the world feeds that because every time that you rationalize your sin, every time that you justify it, every time that you say, but it's this or it's okay here, sin takes more control and you move further into death, further away from God. He also said you're under the control of the world, you're under the control of Satan, the enemy. Now, in Ephesians, Paul talks more than any other book in the New Testament about the heavenly realm and the wars that take place in the heavenly realm. So it's not a surprise here that he helps us understand that one of our greatest enemies is Satan. Now, I've told you before, you can't say the devil made me do it because the devil can't make you do anything as a Christian or as a lost person. But what he does is he comes in and influences. You see, his goal is for you to be destroyed. His goal is for you to walk away from God. See, he's lost the battle. He's lost the war. Game is over for him. The only pawn that he has to play until God says this is the end is getting those that God created to be his children away from God. And so he does everything that he can spiritually to distract you, spiritually to discourage you, spiritually to get you in a place where you won't pursue God, where you'll turn your back on God. Pride is, is the, the greatest enemy of the Christian faith. And what pride does is it comes in and convinces us that I don't need to be saved. I don't need God. I don't need church. And the enemy is the one who's behind that. He says, you are, you are enslaved to the world. You're enslaved to the enemy of the air. And he also says you're enslaved, and probably the hardest, to your own flesh. He said, you see, it's your old sinful nature that is the greatest destroyer that lets sin in. Why should we be surprised when as Christians, probably our greatest enemy is our old nature, that it was our old nature that worked overtime to keep us in that pig trough, 
that it was our old nature that works overtime to keep us away from God. You see, your body, your flesh, and its desires and its wants work everything it can to be against God. And the world feeds that, right? We hear if it feels good, do it, right? If you love, you know, we justify our actions by saying, but we love them. We justify our actions by saying it feels good. We justify our actions by saying it doesn't hurt anybody. See, that's the flesh. That's the old nature. And some of you are battling that old nature. And even on AD, even on the after picture, when we are living for Christ, we still have a war with that old flesh. Why? Because we don't let go when we cross over. And as hard as that war is now, we can win it. But when we are in our own sin and our own desires and our own flesh, you can't win it. Because the flesh will always destroy you. The flesh will always eat you out. The flesh will always convince you that if you want it, do it. He says, you are dead. You are enslaved. I mean, you get a picture. And this is an ugly before picture. But that's not even the worst part. Do you see how he ended at the end of verse 3? He says, like the rest, like everyone else in death to sin, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. Now, that's probably the most uncomfortable descriptor of what it means before Christ. You see, in church, we don't like to talk a lot about God's wrath because it's not politically correct. It's not comfortable. We don't like to talk about a God that has anger. But let me just tell you something. What Paul is saying is that in that before picture, not only are, are you corrupt, not only are you dying spiritually and physically not only are you enslaved to the world and the flesh and the evil one he says because of that nature you become an object of god's wrath you know what god's wrath is it's god's holy anger against sin and the judgments that come the bible says god hates sin why does god hate sin because he sees what it does to his creation He sees how sin eats you up. He sees how sin destroys you. He sees how sin paints this ugly before picture. And God hates it. You understand, he made you in his own image. Imago Dei, he made you to be like him, to be a reflection of his glory and his goodness and his grace and his mercy. But sin corrupted all that. Sin messed it all up and God hates it with everything that he has. And because of that hate for that sin, he pours out his wrath, his divine anger on sin and everything that consumes it. That's where judgment comes in. And because of that before picture, because of who you were, you were an object of God's divine anger. Now, I don't know about you, but that's tough. It's a tough picture. When you think about God's wrath, people say, well, well, can you tone down the wrath and let's talk about love more, right? But you see, as a Christian, you can't really understand how much God loves you if you don't understand how much God hated sin. Because you see, you can't understand how great God's mercy and how great God's grace was until you understand how much he hated sin. He hated sin so much that he was willing to let his only son die a brutal, horrible death so that we might receive grace. That's how much his wrath meant. And that's how much more his love means to us. Now, if you stayed in that before picture, if that is you, he says, that, that was you. If that's you this morning, let me just say, there's hope. 
You ever love when you read the Bible and you, you start reading something, especially, you know, if you ever read through the Proverbs, you get into it, and all of a sudden you're reading along, and you're just thinking, man, this is tough. This is harsh stuff. Start getting overwhelmed. It's easy to read the first part of this chapter, too, and get overwhelmed. It's easy to look and realize and say, I'm not worth it. That is me. Because you understand in this picture, Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. This was me. And everyone in this room that has a faith in Jesus Christ, that was you. Dead, corrupting flesh, in bondage, in slavery, selfish, divine wrath. And then all of a sudden, Paul throws one of those incredible, unbelievable, life-saving conjunctions right in the middle of it. It's one of those conjunctions that changes everything. He starts off verse 4 by saying this, but. In the Greek it says, but God. I love the but gods, amen? All of that stuff is true. I was a mess. I was corrupt. I was dying. I was filth. But God said that's not the end of the story. I was, I was selfish. I didn't want to have anything to do with God. But God said, that's not over. And Paul says, that was you. But guess what? But God, in his infinite love, and, and my translation, NIV says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, not giving us what we deserve, who, who made us alive with Christ, even while we were dead in our transgressions. For it is by grace, unmerited favor, that you have been saved. And God raises us up, and Christ seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us through Jesus Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourself, it is a gift of God not by works, so that any man can boast, but God. Did you hear who the the subject of that passage was, verses 4 through 9 there? Wasn't us. Because remember, we learned in chapter 1, we're not the subject of the story. Okay, we're not the main character. Yes, it's us, B.C., Yes, it's us in our corruption, but the main character of the story is a loving God sent grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and presents an opportunity to go from B.C. to life, from before to after. You see, it's all about God. It's all about his love. It's all about his grace. It's all about his mercy. Why? Because it said in that passage that we didn't have anything to offer. God didn't look at us in this this B.C. state and say, wow, that person looks pretty good or wow, maybe I can do something with that or, or wow, maybe I can make something out of that. It had nothing to do with us. You heard what we brought to the table. You heard what you bring to the table. You bring death and corruption and enslavement and wrath. But God, think about this. Get this through your mind. But God showed up at Antiques Roadshow. And we brought and presented the hot mess that was our life. The junk that we have, the corruption that we have, the the mess that we've made of it. And God in his grace and his love and his mercy took Jesus Christ and he covered that mess and he created a masterpiece. You see, what Paul wants us to understand is that God takes that B.C. and he totally changes it. He takes that B.C. and because of his gift, why did he do it? I love this. Why did he do that? 
It wasn't just because he loved us and because he wanted to show grace and mercy. Verse 7 says, so he could show the world what he's like. See, the whole reason we get to play a part of this is so that God can say, you saw the before, now look at the after. How did it get here? Jesus. So what did we get? How did we change? Very first thing he says, you went from death to life. We went from physical, spiritual death to spiritual life. Now, after A.D., after Christ, after I've had an encounter with Jesus, after I've died to my old self, now I can please God. You see, I went from being an object of wrath to an object of worship. Now I can reflect God. Now I can have intimacy. Now I can honor Him. Now I can glorify Him. That's the after picture. And not only that, he says, not only do you get life, he said, but he raises us up. And that's the same term he used at the end of chapter 1 when he talked about Jesus. What is he saying? He said, not only does he lift us, he raises us up in this life as children of God and gives us power. What does that mean, raise up? He uses it at the end of chapter 1, verse 23, 24, 25. He says, just as God raised Jesus up, so he raises us up. And he said this already six times up into this passage, that you have the same power within you that raised Jesus from the dead. You see, what he wants you to understand over here, not only were you lost and clueless and powerless, now you have the same power that raised Jesus from the dead inside of you. That's the after picture. He gives us power, but he also gives us purpose. See, he wraps it all up here in verse 10 with an incredible word picture. He says, that was you. We were, we were, we were. And all of us in this room, we were. You know, the hardest part, I think, today in witnessing, especially in the Bible Belt, telling people about Jesus, is getting people to understand who they are apart from God. Who we were. Billy Graham used to say in the South, most of the time you have to convince people they're lost before you can convince them they need Jesus. Because most of us say, I don't need to be saved. I don't need a Savior. Look at the before. It's kind of like when you want to lose weight and probably the greatest motivation. I remember when <clears throat> my first church I was serving in, a bunch of the men wanted to lose weight and we had a gym there. And uh, They decided what they would do as motivation to lose weight. There were six or seven of them and uh, they were going to take three months. And so they all went and took pictures in just shorts and topless. And uh, what they were going to do is the one who lost the least amount of weight, his picture would be published in the church newsletter. And they hung those pictures up where they worked out. And I, would, I worked out in there, and I was a lot smaller then and worked out a lot more. But I would go in there, and I would just laugh at them because these guys were, they were going at it because they said, I'm looking at this picture. I know I need to lose weight. And see, so many times in church, we don't show the picture of before. We don't like to talk about before. We cover over before, but you see, you can't understand how incredible after is until you get a good look at before. And he says, if you look at who you were, it'll blow you away to realize who you now are. Paul said, you are now alive. You are now empowered. You now have everything that you need to live this life for, for abundance. And then in verse 10, 
I love what he says here as we get close to end. He says, he says that you, for we, are God's workmanship. And that word there is a Greek word, poema. It's where we get the word poem. You are God's poem. You see, and it's even more than that. Basically, it's saying that you are God's greatest work of art. You are God's masterpiece. You see, this, this ugly, hopeless mess is now God's masterpiece. Let me put that in perspective for you. Think about all the things that God created in this world. The Bible says you can go out and look at the stars and up here we're blessed on a clear night to be able to look and you can see into infinity. It says the heavens display His glory. Have you ever been places like the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls or places overseas and you go and stand you look around and you think, man, God made this. I mean, this time of year you just go over to, to Grandfather Mountain or Thunder Hill Overlook and just park and just look out and think, what a masterpiece. But do you understand compared to all of those things, you are his greatest masterpiece. You are God's greatest workmanship. He says you are now a masterpiece. He painted you perfectly. Matter of fact, the word here he used, he said, you were created in Christ Jesus. That word created is not used much in the Greek because it means created from nothing to indicate that it is a one-of-a-kind masterpiece, that everyone in this room, that when you have an encounter with Jesus Christ, all of a sudden you become a one-of-a-kind masterpiece. That guy at Antiques Roadshow would be spinning in a circle saying, it's a one-of-a-kind, it's the only one that's ever existed. It's a masterpiece. It's worth more than we can put money on. It's perfect because that's who you are in Jesus Christ. But he adds a caveat. See what he says? You are God's workmanship. You are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for you to do. See, God finger painting that I offered in life, this mess, the best I had to offer, and he wiped the slate clean and with my life he created a masterpiece. But the masterpiece that I am is not just to sit in some museum. It's not to sit in an attic or in a basement or on a shelf. It's not just to sit in a pew. He said he created this masterpiece for his good works. Not your good works, his good works. What are his good works? For you to shine. You see, he created you to be seen. And when people see his masterpiece, what are they supposed to see? His grace, His forgiveness, His love, His mercy. The Bible says before you even knew you were a hot mess, God planned exactly how you could shine. At your school, at your workplace, in your home, God had it prepared in advance that this picture was going to show up. That person, just the right time, that guy at work that's uh, suicidal, that couple that's ready to break it up, that, that family that's about to fall apart, that right at the perfect time, God was going to send you his masterpiece to sit there and shine grace and shine love and shine forgiveness. Why? So he gets the glory. See, let me tell you something, believer. You were created for a purpose. 
You're a one-of-a-kind perfection masterpiece. Not because of you, but because of Jesus. Because God loves infinitely. Because God's mercy knows no bounds. And because God's grace never ends. Masterpiece. Say that to your neighbor. I'm God's masterpiece. So you don't believe it, do you? Listen, I tell my wife that every night. (laughs) You are. You're his masterpiece. Created in his image. Cleaned up, perfected, ready to shine. You see, it's time, church, that we get off the walls, that we get out of the museums, that we get out of the pew and take this masterpiece that God created to do what he created me to do. And that's to shine his glory on the world so that when people look at us, they say, it's beautiful. Not I'm beautiful. He's beautiful. And they realize that before picture can now be an after picture. Leaves us with some questions this morning. Which picture are you spiritually? Where do you fall? Before or after? I mean, be honest. People around you at work or at home are looking at your picture today where they see a mess or a masterpiece. I don't tell you that to heap condemnation. I tell you that to give you hope because, you see, you don't have to be here. But God, with his love, wants to give you grace and mercy this morning and make you a masterpiece. All you have to do is say yes. This morning, all you have to do is say, I want that God. I am a hot mess. I am a disaster. I am enslaved. I am in bondage. I am spiritually dead. God, yes, yes. And I promise you, if you say that to him, he will take you, remake you from the ground up into his masterpiece. And you'll experience forgiveness and love and mercy like never before. Don't leave here without doing that. For most of us in this room, we're over here. But if we had to be honest, we've kept a shroud over our masterpiece. I'm only going to let certain people see it. Some people don't deserve to see it, right? It's too much of a masterpiece. I can't, can't show this to those guys at work. I can't show this to those guys at school. It's time for us to take off the cover and show people what God did. It's time for us to declare that we are God's workmanship. We're His poem, work of art, His. And when people see us, they need to give Him glory because of what they see. Is that true in you this morning? If not, you might need to go back and read what Paul says about you, what this after picture means. Because God has plans. God has plans for you. Let's pray.